Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, hello, hello. Please like and subscribe. I'm delighted to be joined by Rob Burley, who's the former head of live political programs at the BBC, who's written a very, very entertaining, punchy, insightful, enthralling book even, called Why Is This Thank Lying you. Bastard Lying to Me? That's all right, Bob. That's all right, Rob. Check his in uh, the post. Uh, <laughs> congratulations um, on the book. A natural writer, I have to say, I was a bit, as, a, as an author, I'm always slightly jealous when someone who's you know you're that wasn't your I mean you you do have a background in the media but you've written your first book and it is a very pacey read congrats thank you yes well I didn't want it to be boring Owen because you know the danger is people see a book about politics and they think oh god we've we've, you know that sounds a bit dull or a bit heavy or a bit of a bit of work or I'll I'll buy it and it'll sit on the bookshelf and it won't actually be be um be read so I, I tried to make it a few things really. I sort of peek behind the scenes, which is always fun for people. Uh, understanding how we do those th- these things, how you know what goes on, um, but also a few jokes now and again, yeah. and, um, and and a story and a narrative to try and kind of hook people in. And it, it covers a lot of stuff, a lot of ground. Um, but I'm really pleased to hear you say that because that was the intention exactly. So it's really because obviously you've always had this passion clearly about politics and yeah. about what you could call the political interview. And, yeah. you know, obviously, you just so people are aware, a lot of shows people would have watched, like Ma, uh, Andrew Ma obviously presented the that on Sunday. Uh, you had Andrew Neil's various programs, mm-hmm. uh, like Daily Politics, um, Politics Live, all these sorts of shows. Obviously, that was your bread and butter. Yes. Now, for those, you know, I'm, I'm a geriatric millennial. Brian Walden is a political interviewer who dominated, yeah. really, the whole art of political interview for a long time before my time before the time of a lot of people i've watched and listening to this so just to explain talk about brian walden um because he was a labor man wasn't he from a working class background but had quite an intriguing relationship with margaret thatcher who obviously dominated politics for the whole of the 1980s absolutely brian is a sort of giant in tv um and had an amazing life and an amazing kind of career trajectory so he like as you say he came from west bromwich um he was a he came from a very, very poor background. His mother died very young and his father was often unemployed. And, and you know, this is a guy born in the 30s. Um, and um, uh, he, he, he went into politics. He said, it's an interesting thing, this. He sort of said, you became Labour because it was in your mother's milk. And that was what you did when you came from the background he came from. But he never really, I don't think he ever really embraced socialism. I think he was really more of a meritocrat and a grammar school boy who felt he was making it you know himself and therefore actually um equality of opportunity rather than outcome was kind of where he was possibly at and so over time he becomes despite lots of you know great sort of hopes for him as a because he was a brilliant orator as a as a future prime minister or minister his parliamentary career never really happened Mm -hmm. um and he ended up uh being poached by icv to come and um make a tv show called weekend world which was the sort of precursor to the sunday shows you see now but very different much much more serious much more in depth and towards the end of his time in parliament he was kind of he became sort of thatch curious when she became the uh, the the leader in 1975 of the tory party because she spoke to his kind of instincts which were grammar school boy who made it himself not he was anti-union power all of those things and so he he came from a particular perspective and became this interviewer. And he was a brilliant interviewer and he was tough and strong and uh, relentless with whoever he interviewed. But he had a very interesting affinity that was political and became quite personal with Mrs. Thatcher. Um, and in fact, his very first ever edition of that show that he did was Mrs. Thatcher in 1977 as the leader of the opposition. And they talked about union power and they talked about, and, and it was an interesting dynamic, perhaps at times uncomfortably close, um, but also, the story arc, as we as we say, and we talk about writing books, was that he went from this position of being her great admirer, um, mm. and that became deeper and deeper when she was prime minister. But at the end of the eighties, he was the man that delivered an interview with her, a political 
political interview, as you mentioned, which really probably spelt the beginning of the end of Thatcherism. Um, so it was a fascinating. That's that, and that whole story is, is is dominates the first few chapters of this book. And um, yeah, I'm hoping you enjoy that. Ask, yeah, just probably ask about that particular because this is a particular interview in 1989 yeah. when Thatcher's premiership was spiraling out of control. You yes. had the poll tax, Nigel Lawson's resignation, yeah. divisions over Europe, and so. But I mean, there was, I, I suppose, because one of the things I'm, I am interested in is how there can be a problematic closeness between the realm of political yes. journalism and power. And Brian Walden used to sit in Downing Street uh, in the early, like in the early hours with Thatcher. He was not known. She, she slept four hours a, a, a night. Um, so yeah. she was, she was often obviously up for a late night chat, but she, yeah. you know, he had a particular, he did have a closeness to it. I don't know. Do you look back at that and think, is that the kind of thing which needs to be interrogated is, is maybe how things, the, a demarcation gets blurred. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this, this is, this is in, in a way the sort of, one of the key revelations in the book is that we kind of knew that he was intellectually and politically attracted to her, um, but he did deliver on air, you know, serious interviews with her that while sort of sympathetic did actually achieve something. They told you things about her and her politics. So that was okay. But then these chats you mentioned were one aspect, but the really shocking moment, which I had, had been rumored, but I've now been able to actually um, substantiate happened was in 1983 so Mrs. Thatcher is in 1983, in, in June of that year, about to run for her second term. And the very last Sunday interview she does is with Brian Walden on ITV. So it's a tough interview, the usual thing. But later that day, and it's a long story, I won't go into all the reasons why, but there's a, there, there's a crisis for Mrs. Thatcher in terms of her comms because she's about to record her final election broadcast for the country to say, give me a second term. And she doesn't like the script. She hates the script. She needs it changing. Um, and she's racking her brains and her colleague, Ian Gow, who's an MP who worked with her, were racking their brains. Who could they get to rewrite this script and really deliver the message? And extraordinarily, they decided to try Brian Walden. Um, and Brian, very unwisely and sort of troublingly, said yes to that when he was called by them as an emergency scriptwriter. So the man that had interviewed her earlier that day on ITV then was writing a broadcast script to be broadcast the following week to the country to say, elect me for a second term. And then after that, assuming she'd win, which she did, he would then continue to go on an interview after that uh, election victory. So that was a very serious misjudgment, it seems to me. I mean, oh, clearly a, a, a more than a blurring of the lines. Um, shocking. Shocking. Yeah, actually. I was shocked. It's a long time ago, but it's shocking to one image of Brian Walden and, and, and of that sort of, and, and it goes to show, this, you know, it's not new, this, 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 these concerns about that closeness but anyway there we were there we are that's what happened because it was brian walden who later in in 1989 when things were really falling apart for thatcher and i suppose what happened then i mean maybe this is problematic because actually he did um do a very hard-hitting interviewer um well he i mean he famously suggested she was, could be off her trolley on national television yeah. But that's yeah. because he personally come to regard her as becoming a kind of Napoleon, Napoleonic in her demeanour. So it was his own personal trajectory, someone he'd been attracted to politically, but then thought was over, had become overstepping the mark. And that's why in 1989, when Thatcher's entourage maybe expected a sympathetic interview and they were mm. actually maybe surprised by what they got. Yes. I mean, yeah, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure entirely by that from this perspective. I think that there was the suggestion, uh, you know, that he that he made that comment about comparing her to a Napoleon figure, someone who's lost their kind of bearings and just thought that they were kind of, you know, could do anything they wanted. There, there was obviously that concern was in his head. But by and large, in the run up to that interview in the, in the years before, he was very supportive of her still. Mm -hmm. And I speaking to the people that worked with him on that interview, the team behind it. Um, you know, they, what, particularly his executive producer, a guy called David Cox, an absolute giant of political TV in the back in the back room, said that for Brian, this was a choice. He was coming to this interview in 1989. Now, just so people understand, this is 1989. Uh, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, who's been there for six years, Nigel Lawson, who's recently died, has just resigned. And fortuitously for ITV, Mrs. Thatcher is scheduled to do an interview with Brian Walden two or three days later. Some people may have backed out of that, but Mrs. Thatcher didn't do that. To her credit, she did show up for this interview. And all the press talk and all the media talk and all the bubble talk at that moment was, will Brian set aside his own personal and ideological commitment to her that they knew existed? 
and do the right thing and deliver the kind of moment of kind of reckoning that was that was demanded because she'd lost her chancellor. Her argument in the interview was ridiculous about how that had happened and uh, really didn't add up. But and Brian chose the right thing. Brian chose the journalistic path. I don't, I don't think it was because he'd become disillusioned that he did that. I think it was he was disillusionment may have been partial, but I think essentially he was still where he was. But he knew that this is what he had to do, which is a relief given what he'd done in 1983. So it's, it's important to, to sort of acknowledge that when it came to it, he did something very damaging and, and, and extraordinary. Like you say, you don't call the prime minister mad on telly. That's, that's not a thing you do. I mean, I remember I say in the book, if you were around in those days and you've probably seen the clip, the famous clip of her saying we are, we've become a grandmother, or we are now a grandmother. You sort of started to think people started on the street, people you chatted with, your family, your parents. She's a bit she's gone a bit mad. We'd say yeah. that, but you never say on telly, you know, and, and he and he did. Uh, and and that was shocking and and damaging because it was truthful. I mean, it's interesting. She did have a very otherworldly quality about it. I mean, look, you know, I grew up in a, in a, in a particular family where she was, a, yeah. if, if I'm a demonic figure. But I mean, she, she, she had this very otherworldly figure. I suppose, I mean, which we'll, we'll come on to later in terms of just other politicians. But yeah. she did, she was such a, you know, she was an ideological politician of, of a very particular kind. She once famously slammed down, I think, the road to serfdom by Hayek or something by Frederick yeah. Hayek, the, uh, the, kind of one of the godfathers of what we call neoliberal economics, saying this is what we believe. Mm -hmm. um, and she saw political interviews, didn't she, as a almost a bully pulpit. That's what she would have liked to have seen them, where she could articulate the case, a populist case for neoliberalism. And that was, you know, we're going to free the individual. We're going to roll back the frontiers of the state. And she actually relished doing interviews because she mm -hmm. thought that was a way where she could win the battle of ideas, this big ideological argument, which was going on in the 1980s. Absolutely. And I mean, she, she saw herself, um, Charles, I spoke to Charles Moore at length, you know, her, her official biographer, who was very generous in his time. And, um, and she saw herself as a teacher. She saw any opportunity to teach people about her philosophy and help them understand why it was the right one was to be embraced. Hmm. And so, you know, for me, ir irrespective of, what one thinks of that philosophy, there's something laudable in my eyes about being willing to make the argument. And I think where, you know, to, to cast forward for a second, Liz Truss, who liked the kind of Thatcherite cosplay of kind of looking, you know, trying to dress a bit like her, getting in a behind a on a tank or whatever, and sort of aped the idea that she had a vision, a radical vision to change Britain um, economically. She just, she, did, she may have had that vision, yeah. such as it was, but she wasn't willing to actually argue for it. She didn't come out and be scrutinized after the event that she wasn't really given the, the fair crack of the whip. Well, you need to come and win the argument. You need, to, you need to tell people this is going to be difficult, but I think it's the right thing and I'm going to push ahead and there'll be suffering, but it'll be, it'll be the right way to go. Now, look, you, whatever you think of that argument, that's what you need to do if you're going to argue for radical change. And Mrs. Thatcher did do that. And by the way, earlier when I said it was uh, truthful, I don't mean to say she was mad. I think she, I, th I just think that was an idea that was out there. There was a sense that she'd lost her bearings, but she never lost that sense of, you know, this is where I I want to argue my case, mm -hmm. and and I'll I'll argue with anybody uh, about it, and and it will be I'll relish it. And that I think is lost a bit, um, um, in lots of ways. It's lost in tech tech um, technocratic management politics. It's lost in in sort of um, you know cowardly power hungry populism so um you know in that respect at least whatever you thought about her in your household and it was the same in mine really um mm -hmm. you have to hand it to her moving on to what i, I suppose you call the rob burley era <laughs> i mean i would put it to you you had quite an actually quite an important role in british democracy quite a powerful role because live political programs of the sort we describe yeah. were the, you know the key forum in which politicians were are scrutinized and, and held to account in various ways and yeah. the manner in which that is done can actually have quite consequential impacts in terms of what happens in democracy and elections and, and so on. I'm just interested, when you became head of live political programs, what for you was, this is my mission. This is what, this is the kind of key set of principles or values which are going to <clears throat> in the way I approach this. Well, I think to go back at the job before, I Marshall uh, in 2015, and the, the Marshall had sort of been the heir to the David Frost program. I don't know if people will remember that show, which, which ended in the, in the 2000s, which was a show that very much 
yeah, it, it, they got very big guests and, and they didn't have very hard questions. They had a list of questions that were sort of drawn from what was in the newspapers trying to make news. And that was really their function. They didn't really hide that. And I came to that job to Mar thinking this is not really the way it can stay or should stay in an environment, in, in, you know, in the, in, the, in the media environment, in the political environment we were, we we're in in that period. So we need to toughen up. We need to ask tougher questions. Uh, we need to be a bit more forensic and bring the, the things that I brought, which was a kind of history and forensic long form political interviews. So that's the kind of thing that Walden did. I did it with Jonathan Dimbleby at ITV. I've, I did it with Andrew Neal at the Sunday Politics. I brought that to Mar. And I sought to bring that as well to um, to the job more broadly when I got to run the whole department. The other thing, and again, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's contested and controversial stuff, is that I wanted to bring voices from across the spectrum into the argument and have arguments. I mean, I just talking about Mrs. Thatcher having arguments. You know, I'm for arguments. That's what I'm basically for. Um, and and, and we, we need to, there's obviously pitfalls with those things. You need to be careful who you're letting in and you need to be careful you don't create an environment that's just heat and no light. Um, but I think, with, you know, Politics Live, I'm actually pretty proud of that show. I think it's on, at its best. It can be illuminating and um, and actually have a proper argument and a conversation. So that was those were the sort of principles um, if, if, that underpinned it. Um, in terms of, I was talking about Andrew, just, you know, Andrew Marr, I suppose, because you yeah. worked very closely with Andrew for a very long time. Andrew Marr. So I don't like calling people positions of power by their first names. It sounds uh, you've, met him, you've met him, Owen. Don't I, pretend. I have met him, yeah, and, and, and you know, I personally like him. I suppose some, I'm just interested, some would critique, he got critiqued a lot in, in that position. And some people thought, I suppose, and I think Andrew Neil may have maybe retweeted things along these lines to kind of hint at this, which was and that Andrew Neil was a kind of Rottweiler and Andrew Marr was soft. What would you, yeah, what well, do you think mean, about that, the approach? That's what he was critiqued, people would say. What sure. do you think about that? I think that it's, uh, I mean, look, you're going to be critiqued. I mean, the bottom line is you will be critiqued all the time that's that's going to happen whatever so um uh, i think it's 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 not right i mean and andrew marr like i say the show that i inherited was a was a bit more of a kind of genial sunday morning sofa show and, and it wasn't going to lose that feel because you don't really want a kind of andrew neil style haranguing interview at, at nine thirty nine o'clock in the morning you got a hangover with the kids running around yeah, yeah 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 it's like oh you know stop shouting andrew so it's not it's not it's not going to be like that but but it but as I say, what I did was to try and try and just increase the extent to which we we were forensic and we asked tough questions. And I, you know, I would say this, but having for this book gone back to a lot of that material, I feel quite happy about what we did, and both in the Brexit campaign and also in terms of our scrutiny of politicians. You know, I mean, you know, when you put Andrew, you put David Cameron on, in in the, I mean, you you think by the critique, one of the critiques. That you know, we we sort of the austerity period, as it were, if you, well, it's not ended, but it was it was kind of launched in that period. David Cameron, George Osborne, that somehow we didn't scrutinise that or put them under pressure or only argued with the Labour Party about whether they were going to do something about the deficit. Whereas in fact, what we did was we talked about the real world effects of those policies, uh, and there were quite revealing moments. There's a moment in uh, an interview with David Cameron, which features in the book where we bring up the case of a guy called David Clapson who died after being sanctioned. Uh, and the way worked his whole life. This is a guy who died with a pile of CVs by his side because he was trying desperately to get a job. This is a guy who was slightly baffled by the online system he was now faced with because he was of a different generation. And this is a guy who died uh, you know, we, there's been no proper inquest, but we were able to say to him, you know, what happened to him in the system, David Cameron, uh, contributed almost certainly to his death. Oh. And we raised that with him and it was very revealing and his family were very upset by David Cameron's response, which was a sort of offhand Flashman-esque sort of, um, you know, these things happen approach rather than a curiosity about, mm, hang on, I've, I've established a system here, which I think is a good idea, but people might be dying. And I thought that was revealing. And that's the kind of thing we did on Sunday morning at you know nine in the morning. So I don't really accept it. Um, yeah. I think with, you know, people are going to say what they're going to say. All I know is we just, we did the job well, as far as I'm concerned. And we did it in an appropriate way, given that particular format. It would be different in an Andrew Neil show, a bit more forensic, a bit more hard hitting. Does with, that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. Yeah. Uh, with, uh, just in terms of closeness to power, one of the things I'm interested, again, which yeah. is, what's up? you know, because we talked about Brian Walden and Margaret Thatcher. And yeah. and I suppose how, 
one of the problems with Westminster-based political journalism is it can end up being maybe a bit incestuous. I mean, there are actually examples of journalists and politicians becoming quite close friends. You might think, well, how do you avoid that? They work in the same circles. <laughs> they go and socialise. But sometimes going on holidays, sometimes being good parents to each other's kids. I mean, you do yeah. get these examples. Yeah. Um, and I'm just one example, because I found this interesting with Andrew Marr, who actually apologised recently in a way I thought was commendable about a, and this isn't, this to be clear, this is back in 2003 when he yeah. was working as a political, BBC's political editor. It wasn't when you were working yeah. at the BBC. But just get, as an example, when Baghdad fell in the Iraq war and he, very, he did a very notorious piece to camera yeah. Um, in which he just lauded a huge victory, basically said everything Tony Blair's done has been completely vindicated. All his critics have been humiliated. Um, his critics, obviously, they're only human, so they won't admit that they've been completely and utterly proven wrong, but they will come to you and, you know, the Prionis is walking on water. Mm. But what the, re the reason I bring that up is it just... The problem there, I think, was it. you get this closeness often between key political journalists and politicians where they're almost embedded because mm. we got this phenomenon of journalists mm. being embedded in conflicts in armies and they yeah. almost end up then seeing themselves as being part of the army. Do, do you see what I mean? I mean, is there, do you think there's a, there's a basis, a justification for that critique? And do, do you see it as a structural problem with Westminster political journalism? Yeah, so let me. Try, I'll try and answer. I can't really say very much about Andrew's piece to camera in two thousand and three, no, really. No, no. But I, mean, I suppose, and I don't know if that's evidence of closeness or evidence of, you know, especially with the benefit of hindsight, uh, um, uh, getting it, you know, wrong. I mean, there's no, you know, to say that the the the, the Blair position on Iraq was vindicated, you know, would be wrong. Um, but he was saying something at the time. It appeared, you know, anyway, whatever. He can. I can't really answer for that. And he's apologised for it's, it, it, the misjudgment. So I, don't, I can't really say also that was to do with closeness. Um, but I do think there is a problem with closeness. Um, and I do think you know, it's hard to stop people socialising, stop people becoming close. I suppose in my case, because I sort of always felt, I never really felt part of all that. Um, when I was, despite reaching that level, I was kind of not hanging out with these people. And I didn't really want to hang out with them. I, mean, I didn't dislike them as people necessarily, but I just, I didn't want to be infected too much about understanding too well their their own their own sort of problems because it's really not about them. It's about the people of the country who are being governed and and what happens to them and where the decisions affect them. It's not about, you know, we need to make allowances because, you know, uh, politician X, Y and Z has all these great sort of burdens. Um, so there was that for me. I didn't really do that. Um, and also, um, I mentioned in the book, there was an occasion on, I won't go into the whole story, but there's an occasion in the 90s when I'm on the uh, Jonathan Dimbleby show on ITV and Paddy Ashdown, the late Liberal Democrat leader, sort of castigated my own research on air, which was quite scary at the time because he, he, suggesting that I'd got something wrong on air. And then in the green room afterwards was, um, you just sort of said, um, sorry about that, you know, just had to just had to say something to get out of the hole. And it was just like, oh, so it's a game. And I, and, 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 and I, and I always wanted to resist that notion that it's a game because the people who it affects don't understand the rules of the game and aren't in the game. So that, it, all of that, contributed to my own sort of desire, desire to slightly stand back from too much closeness to people that worked in politics or politicians themselves. Um, so, so that, so that, and so that was my way of resisting what is a, a danger. Hmm. It's harder for people who make the news shows, like the actual bulletins, you know, putting out those, they're, they're covering minute to minute what's going on in Westminster, what the story is. Um, they become quite close to politicians because they're looking for stories. They're looking for access whatever and they speak to them a lot so they speak to them perhaps you know every morning during the today program or late at night after a, the, the news at 10 or something so it's quite a dangerously close relationship and um you know what i thought was valuable earlier on in the bbc's history was that there were there was more than one person who was interfacing with politicians and mm -hmm. um, and you, you 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 made sure that you weren't just you know you weren't risking an individual becoming too close to a particular Per, you know group of people in power uh, you know i'm not saying that happened but that is the risk that's the danger you have to guard against and the bbc obviously because of cuts which are not really their fault have had to strip away all those people who were a safeguard against oh, something's falling over okay. um uh, who were a safeguard against um against that 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 danger does that does that make sense yeah it does yeah i mean in terms of the closeness i suppose you know it's interesting that the right-wing media in this country will often call the bbc a den of leftiness 
I'd, I'd put that. Yes. The reason they say that is because um, they're used. They're, they're almost so used to being so dominant within the the media industry that they regard anything that's in right wing yeah. as a violation of neutrality. And also, the BBC does have responsibilities to present different sides of the argument, and clearly not couch its argue, you know, present information like the Daily Mail or the Sunwood, Clearly, but yeah. What I'd put to you is there is a revolving door between the BBC and the Conservative Party, which is an established fact. So Boris Johnson hired Gitto Harry from the BBC. Mm. Your predecessor as head of live political programming. Um, uh, what was it? Why have I just forgotten his name? Just forgot Robbie his Gibb. Name. Robbie Gibb. Robbie Gibb. So Robbie Gibb started off at the BBC. Uh, he mm-hmm. then ended up at the Conservative Party. He worked for Francis Maud. He was Shadow Chancellor. His brother, I mean, can't really hold that against him, is a Conservative politician. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Yeah. Um, he then ended up at the BBC. He then ends up being poached by Theresa May as a director of communications. He then goes off to launch GV yeah. News um, and then goes back to the BBC yeah. on the BBC board and is accused by Emily yeah. Maitlis, a senior BBC journalist when she leaves, of being an agent of the Conservative Party within the BBC. You've got uh, George Osborne mm-hmm. hired Thea Rogers from the BBC, ended up marrying her, yeah. you know. Uh, you, you, D- uh, David Cameron hired Craig Oliver, one of the most senior figures mm-hmm. um, in, again, in, in, in BBC News. Um, you know, I mean, it is like an endless revolving door between the BBC and the Conservative Party. I mean, don't you see that? Isn't that, isn't that yeah, very, the, the, very, very problematic? Well, I mean, you know, it's, it, it, I guess it speaks to the, um, often to the closeness of the two. And, and as I say, I, you know, I, I, I will defend my own approach to that, which was to not be close to, to parties. But I mean, I think the only thing I would say about that is I, I don't think it's about the Tory party and the BBC. I think it's about the party in power or coming to power. And, the, and, and people of the BBC wanting to work for them because, you know, I'm just trying to think. You know, we had, we had. Um, I mean, I remember Lance Price going to going to work for for Tony Blair. We had uh, uh, Gavin Davis becoming the you know, the, chair, the chair of the BBC. Uh, we we had uh, James Pennell sort of running between the two things. I don't think it was. I don't think it's unique to to the Tory Party at all. I think there are people in political television who are political sometimes in a way that's quite sort of agnostic i think about in terms of where they stand they they might they, and they're attracted to power so if it was so if if, if if you know like i say if tony blair is the coming man then they, they're likely to jump on the new labor train um and so you know because i don't actually think I mean, to be honest i don't think it's, it's accurate to suggest that the the bbc the bbc is not perfect it's not right-leaning it's I don't believe. I mean, obviously, that depends where you set right. Okay, but I don't think it's Tory leaning. I think it's it's kind of centre of gravity in terms of most people who are there is a little bit centre left, really. Um, well, yeah. I mean, is it, a, a senior BBC presenter put it to me that yeah. the 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 kind of main sort of um, the ballot the, the the kind of main dominant political ideology was Blairism, and that's why people. So mm. that would mean on the economy, often supporting free market economics, but on social issues like being maybe pro-immigration do you think that's that was reasonable for a long time at bbc i think it depends who you're talking about really i mean i think it's i think you know there are plenty of people i've worked with at the bbc who weren't blairites who were sort of um on, on furthest to the left than that and sort of wanted you know didn't like i mean i wasn't ever iraq but you know since after that kind of took a view on 
on economic policy that might be more left wing than than than, than Blair's. I don't think they identify themselves as that. I think you know. I think I, 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 what I'm saying is, in a way, the kind of the people I encounter encountered in the broader BBC over time tended to me to to feel to me like they were sent either centre or slightly to the left, uh, maybe you know perhaps to the left of of Blairism. And then there's the other people who are the more ambitious sort of they might jump into politics sort of people or the on screen people or the reporters, you know, they have they're ambitious people yeah. and then they have a range of views. I mean, I I couldn't really characterize, you know, I don't really think, you know, I could characterize them as Blairite or Tory. But let, let me put this to you. Let, 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 let's Let's do a thought that, experiment. Really. As a yeah, thought experiment, because I suppose the argument there is that the BBC basically is one of the structural problems. Is it, it becomes too close to whoever is the incumbent in power. Mm -hmm. yeah, um, yeah. So under the new Labour period, it gravitates towards new Labour. And obviously you get, you mm -hmm. know, you get appointees who are favourable to the government. Though actually, mm -hmm. uh, you got then they were seen as too critical over Iraq. So they end up having to resign, <laughs> which itself, I suppose... Yeah. Ask, raises various questions and then the conservatives yeah. come to power so they end up closer to them i would put it to yeah. you that hypothetically if jeremy corbyn mm -hmm. had become prime minister after 2017 yeah. i don't think the bbc ever ever would have become close to a corbyn government so i think that does tell you something that it if it was a right-wing conservative government well, or uh, a blairite sure government, I I, I... sorry where I don't agree with that, I don't, I, like, like, because I don't actually, I think you think it's coming from an ideological place somehow, and there may be some people who are in, in that situation. What I think is, I don't think it's about that. I think what it is is the government of the day has so much is so important to you if you are running politics at the BBC yeah. and anywhere else as well. You know, they can provide you with uh, those stories. They can provide you with interviews with the prime minister. You know, it, it makes sense for you to be. Uh, cultivating a relationship if you're doing that sort of stuff with whoever the person if it, you know if it had turned out to be Seamus Milne then I'm sure that they would have been you know seeking a, a coffee with him seeking a drink uh wanting to meet up with others uh, senior people in the Labour Party if there was a Corbyn government I don't I, I think it would switch and there may even be people who are ambitious people who would seek to go and work for that administration because they're in power so I I don't think there was like there's I just don't really buy that I don't I think that's what drives it it's access and it's and the danger is the close, as we've seen, there was a story in The Guardian uh, this year, which which suggested, you know, it's just anecdotal to an extent, but it featured some messages that suggested that the government's influence could be quite direct in terms of the language being used in output, you know, mm -hmm. what the emphasis of certain stories was. And I think that would, that applied not because of an allegiance to the Tory party by anybody in the, in the, in the BBC, but a, but a belief really that they... You should listen to those people because they're powerful more than they should listen to the opposition because they're not in power. Um, and that is the risk for me. And it's, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a real risk and, it's, and, it, and it needs to be examined. I mean, I, I am interested just if, if you have any thoughts on, on Robbie Gibb, because he was your predecessor and he has been accused by Ebony Maitlis and Lewis Goodall, two very senior BBC journalists who weren't obviously under your purview, if you, if you like. But they accuse him of being an agent of the Conservative Party within the BBC and just, you know... Ha what does that tell us structurally about the failings, I suppose, of the BBC when it comes to being independent of the government? Well, I mean, I don't know why, you know, I don't know why they say that specifically. That suggests that an activity that he was he's undertaking that's kind of as an agent inside the BBC doing things. I think the reason is because, you know, we have Richard Sharp, uh, late, the late Richard Sharp in terms of the BBC in there we had tim davies got a history of being involved with the tory party and there's robbie gibb who's who's got that background too so i think it's because of that sense that there are quite a lot of senior tories no, sorry there are a lot of senior people at the bbc who've got a tory background that, that you get this kind of concern mm -hmm. um, i don't i can't really speak to why they would use that particular term about robbie he wasn't acting as that when i worked with him uh, he was you know he was uh, somebody who uh, came from a different politics than i came from mm -hmm. um, but was you know he, he acted in, in my experience impartially when he was doing the job that I subsequently did. So I, you know, you know, we had, you know, there were things we disagreed on. I mean, we disagreed after Brexit. There was a conversation I had, which I relay in the book about, I said the, the morning after the campaign, I said the result rather, I said, you know, we need to be interrogating the veracity of the claims that were made by vote leave. And Robbie very much felt that was the wrong thing to do because it was like a rerunning of the referendum. Whereas for me, it was an absolutely fundamental sort of journalistic duty to, do that like you would do with a government that's elected so mm -hmm. we disagreed and i didn't actually frankly i just disregarded the 
the, you know, his kind of view on that and did what I did. So, um, so there was the odd thing, but I, I, you know, I didn't see him being an agent of the Conservative Party. But you know, there may be things that Emily's referring to or or Lewis that that I'm not privy to. Before I ask about the 2019 election, finally, I want to talk to you about Boris Johnson. And I, I'd yeah. put it to you that Boris Johnson, to me, is in large part a real failure of political journalism. He was clearly not suitable mm. for high office. MPs yeah. who made him leader of the Conservative Party didn't think he was fit for office. I remember speaking to one in a, green, a BBC green room uh, in 2018 who said there was no way we're going to let, as Tory MPs, Boris Johnson into the final two so Tory members can have a say. He's not fit for office. He's a charlatan, he's a liar, um, et cetera, et cetera. A few months later, that Tory MP recorded his endorsement video, which he posted on social media, about why Boris Johnson was suitable to be prime minister and how he was backing him all the way. Now, the point I would make to you is everyone knew Boris Johnson for years was completely a, 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 a liar, on record, lying over and over again, that he'd had, for example, a you know recorded interview where his um, friend suggested beating up a journalist um mm. now boris johnson just more just played around with interviewing uh, interviewers by putting on this mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. comic acts yeah. constantly going on tangents yeah. and he did that yeah. very very effectively in a way that frankly seemed to beguile most interviewers and you could tell that he'd succeeded in doing that because when there was one example which was eddie mayer who stood in for mm-hmm. andrew marr famously mm-hmm. went for Boris Johnson, listed some of these examples yeah. and actually said to him, yeah. you're a nasty piece of work, aren't you? And it, mm-hmm. I'd put it yeah. to you that if other journalists had maybe taken a, a, a tougher line with Boris Johnson instead of allowing him to just play around with him and create this image which allowed him to get away with things that no other politician mm. would have got away with. Their careers would have ended a very long time ago, but he managed to survive being sacked uh, as a journalist, being sacked uh, as a politician, as a, you know, for having an affair, but always managing to come back and end up in high office. Isn't he a failure of political journalism in this country? Yes, though, and he is, yeah. Yeah, I think that the effect, I relay some of this in the book, you know, the have I got news for you effect, as it were, which was the first thing. And he, I, he, there's a quote which I hadn't I hadn't discovered before when he talks to Kirsty Walken in, in a show in, I think, 2008 or something, maybe no, a bit earlier than that, actually, he's at The Spectator. And he's, he says, you know, you know, he basically says, I play this uh, this role. And it's a way of getting my political message across that I play this buffoon role. And that's what I do. So he wasn't even hiding it in a way. I think the problem was, um, you know, that he was... He obviously used those techniques and he came into the room as a sort of star who, you know, he's a bit like, you know, Beyonce. He's, he's Boris. He's not even Boris Johnson. He's 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 to be treated. He's treated as good value and a great a great booking. And that's dangerous. And the people allowed him to play this role of kind of slightly the buffoon and they fell for it um, a lot of the time. Um, now, Eddie Mayer's interview took place in 2013. And it's worth reminding ourselves that, of course, he was referring to a documentary on the BBC, which was came out the next week by Michael Cockrell, which outlined all of this stuff. So it was hardly hidden by the BBC. I and mean, the BBC actually, to their credit there, did that work. Eddie Mayer, you know, in, a, in an absolutely astonishing piece of sort of t- a takedown, just forensically identified these moments of uh, you know, untruthfulness, lying, you know, involved in unsavory conversations with his mate about beating up a journalist, all that stuff. Uh, and that was really powerful and effective. And actually, but even Boris Johnson later that day said um, it was fair enough. He did very well, Eddie Mayer. But, you know, the question is then, you know, did people carry on with that? Um, all I can say for my part is whenever we had Boris Johnson and it tended to be on the Mar show, you know, we got we really very much tried to counter his techniques mm-hmm. uh, and not buy into the Bojo nonsense and try and nail him down. And it was really hard. It, it, it's, it's, it's effective. Uh, and you think, I mean, do you think he was ever it? nailed down? Was he ever nailed well, down in that well, format? Well, I mean, obviously, Eddie did very well with it there. Well, I, that, I, that, that's the, the one show, example. That's why I bring it up. Yeah. No, no, no. Well, we are, I have another example for you. But uh, on the Mars show, um, you know, there, there are, there, I mean, for example, in the Brexit campaign, uh, there's a moment when he, he has to acknowledge that there will be an economic hit that could we could lose jobs if we if we vote to leave, which was something he hadn't he hadn't been able he hadn't done before. So Andrew was you know, tried his best to get through the bluster. It's incredibly hard. He's, it's a technique that's very effective. The one, obviously, the very most famous example, apart from Eddie Mayer, where it did happen, 
was an interview in the 2019 uh, leadership election between Andrew Neil and Boris Johnson, uh, in which it's in the book in great detail. It's probably my proudest moment in TV, which is when you plan an interview and you can plan it very carefully ahead of time, it doesn't usually go anywhere near how you hope it will. Um, it's usually something happens that just throws things off and, you, and your techniques, your plans are, have to be thrown away a bit. But we decided in that in that campaign that Boris Johnson's, uh, you know, his techniques to deal with the risk of no deal Brexit. You remember that, of course, um, was to say that he understood the GATT agreement. He'd wheel out the GATT agreement and paragraph 5B of the GATT agreement as being something that offered a safeguard. If we left the EU without a deal, we'd carry on trading with the EU in the same way. Um, so what we did before the interview was we knew that he, like a sort of sec, a, a student in a seminar with a hangover, could, could he could just about regurgitate 5B, the paragraph of the GATT agreement. But we wondered whether he'd understand what 5C said. Mm. And of course, he wouldn't have read that far because he was a chancer. So what we did was we asked him, we allowed Buster about 5B. We allowed the hubris to rise as he thought he really had, uh, you know, he was winning the argument. And then we asked him, and what about what's in 5C? And he had to confess that he didn't know what was in 5C. And he was absolutely exposed in an interview. Um, didn't mean much, didn't matter much to the Tory membership who voted for him a couple of weeks later, unfortunately, in the sense that, you know, that might have been a bit of a bit of a red flag. Yeah. So it was possible. You know, it, it was possible. It's easy to say, you know, no one ever no one ever landed a blow on him. But I think I can name I can think of those examples off the top of my head. Just finally, I want to talk about the 2019 election. Um, yeah. Quite notoriously, Boris Johnson refused to do an interview with Andrew Neil. Um, yeah. And Andrew Neil did interview the leader of the opposition, Jeremy Corbyn. And mm -hmm. it's fair to say that interview yeah. for Jeremy Corbyn was disastrous. I did really, truly, yeah. spectacularly awful um, interview, mm -hmm. which was perhaps the lowest point of the entire campaign for the Labour Party. Could have lost... You know, because, you know, could, who knows, maybe a, hundred, a few hundred thousand votes. Uh, that could have cost Labour. The next day, every single newspaper, basically front page, going on about how Jeremy Corbyn's mauled and destroyed uh, by Andrew Neil. Yeah. Now, clearly the fact that Andrew Neil subjected, I mean, you would obviously agree with this, and Andrew Neil did, famously, he did a, he did a video about this. It was a, a huge failure um, of well, sorry, it was it was a disaster that Boris Johnson wasn't scrutinised in the same way. So, can you just explain mm. how that happened, how that was allowed to happen, and do you think it's fair yeah. to say that the Labour Party were actually tricked into doing it because they believed for certain that Boris Johnson was going to be subjected to the same interview? Okay, in terms of how it, why it happened, just one thing to say: it follows from that interview that we just discussed with Boris Johnson in the leadership campaign. I think after that election, after the, sorry, after that interview, it, it was probably clear in the minds of Dominic Cummings and Lee Kane, who were the people running the the Commons show there for Boris Johnson, that they wouldn't subject him to that again. You know, they learned their lesson from that. So that that was, I'm sure that was in their minds from the very beginning. Um, so then, what happens is uh, the election's called. There is a package of there's a package of programs that is offered up to the political parties for agreement. There are the debates, there might be question time specials, and they included in that list of four programmes, I believe, the Andrew Neil interviews. So that was that happened. Um, I wasn't involved in those initial conversations, but I was involved in then subsequent conversations with the parties to try and make the logistical arrangements for these interviews. The way that works, having done this before, is that you never if, if you if you had to get nailed down each date for everybody first, you probably wouldn't make the shows because people aren't willing to do that on all sides. They're not, they're reluctant to commit in that way. So you have to sort of start the process. If you can get somebody, you air the show, but you obviously wouldn't do that if someone had told you that they weren't going to do it. So if, if Boris Johnson's people had said to me that they weren't going to do the show, whatever, instead of saying, yeah, we want to do the show. Let's just keep talking about this. We need, which is, which is the customary thing. It's always been done. We, you know, we, 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 we want to do the show. It's about finding the opportunity and the time. So I proceeded on that basis. Okay. And so therefore what happened was Jeremy Corbyn fixed the date. Eventually that happened. It went out, like you say, it didn't go very well for him. And after that, it became clearer and clearer that in fact, those indications that they were acting in good faith and that they were going to do it 
if they could make the you know dependent on logistics was were obviously untrue and in fact they were never going to do it and, John, and dominic cummings has made that clear subsequently in, in various tweets about the subject so how did that happen well it turns out I, so I, I i felt i felt that i had a clear conscience on that because it did trouble me obviously because my conversations with them had never said any with anybody had ever said at any point we have a firm commitment from all parties and and and, and, and candidate not can, candidates for prime minister effectively to do the show however that's our plan we're in we're in genuine talks with everybody let's let's proceed on that basis and labor they did that <clears throat> Sub subsequently so I, and I went on you know I was on Twitter and being attacked by lots of people after it happened because in some way I must have tricked the Labour Party to, into doing this um, you know I don't think they're naive people uh, uh, they're, they're capable people I didn't trick them but what has come to light since then is I've been speaking to Seamus Milne who hasn't spoken a lot since the election about the communications that he had with the um, with the BBC in those weeks and it turns out from you know contem contemporaneous WhatsApp messages and text messages and the like between uh, Seamus and other people uh, who were senior in the comms team of party that they re reported conversations with like, with BBC executives more senior than me, in which they were told in terms that uh, Boris Johnson had agreed to doing all that package, that entire package, including the Andrew Neil show. So that's concerning because there's more than one occasion where there are messages saying, I've just had a meeting with the BBC and effectively I've been told that it's all happening, even after Jeremy did his interview. So and I know after the and I know after the interview was done with Jeremy that it, any pretense they would their, their pretense that they were doing it was very half hearted after that. So it was so that is concerning. Um, I, I can't substantiate it and I can't tell you why. It may be that the, the, the government. Is it possible that Boris Johnson and his administration lied to the BBC? It's possible, right? Um, that could have that could be the reason they could have told them they're going to do it, and they didn't mean it. They never told me they were going to do it. They tell I, I've gone back to them. They maintain they never told anybody that they were going to do it. But somehow that impression very clearly was given to the Labour Party, and I think that's a big a big problem actually because, like you say, it could have had a material effect on the outcome of the election. It was unfair. They waited and pretended long enough to ensure that Jeremy Corbyn. Was sub, did submit himself to the Andrew Neil treatment. You know, it's very dishonourable by them. Obviously, that goes without saying. I, I, I just don't understand how that impression could have been given so firmly if it wasn't what was told to them. But I can't, I can't, re, you know, I, can't, I wasn't in those meetings. Of course. Just, just finally, actually, the final thing I did want to ask is about Andrew Neil. And I know you, you were very you know, eloquently defend Andrew Neil yeah. as an interviewer. You'll say he will hold all politicians, regardless of their political stripes to to account and he's a rottweiler yeah. doesn't matter who they are but what i'm interested in though is that andrew neil obviously is unapologetically a very right-wing conservative um i think his beliefs speak for themselves and his public utterances what what i suppose i'm interested in is he's chair of the spectator magazine which is a very right-wing magazine which has published mm -hmm. amongst other things uh, articles supporting greek neo-nazis uh, arguing there's not enough Islamophobia in the Conservative Party. Um, articles entitled things like In Praise of the Wehrmacht. And I suppose the point I would make is, do you honestly think somebody who is as equally left-wing as Andrew Neil, regardless of how good they are as an interviewer, would ever end up in that position? If they were chair of a radical left-wing magazine, uh, I'm not talking about the New Statesman because The Spectator is more right-wing than The New Statesman is left-wing. Mm -hmm. Would that ever happen? And also, given the Gary Lineker affair, in which Gary Lineker was, you know, done over for violating BBC neutrality, Andrew Neil tweeted all the time, clearly right-wing, you know, shtick, um, when he was a interviewer. You might say that doesn't infringe on his right, on his abilities as an interviewer, but Gary Lineker was talking mm -hmm. about politics, which wasn't even relevant to what he did on television. Yeah. So do you see my point? A, would anyone as left-wing as Andrew Neil ever be in that position, however good an interviewer? And B, why did Gary Lineker get done over for his tweets, but Andrew Neil never did? Oh, just on the tweets, first of all, I mean, you know, I, did, I don't understand the BBC's policy on the tweets. I just don't understand. I never really did. It seemed completely inconsistent. Um, and I think, you know, they've, they've been burned very badly as a consequence of their mishandling of that affair. You know, the, the DG very directly himself is responsible for the mishandling of that affair. So, you know, I, 
so without getting into in a way i don't you know the tweets thing is like they didn't make it clear how this was supposed to operate it didn't seem to make any sense it seemed to be one rule for one and one rule for somebody else so, I, so that was mysterious to me on the other thing i mean it's hard to it's hard to a, a, a kind of i mean the only the only sort of identifiably sort of left person who was who kind of expressed that was paul mason i suppose when he was on newsnight i think that was, he was that economics was, economics editor Newsnight. yeah economics yeah. editor newsnight so he did he did that I, mean, I think ultimately the reason why Andrew had longevity at the BBC and why I back Andrew Neil at the BBC is that, irrespective of these questions, is that he was a brilliant interviewer, like generationally, like the best interviewer probably since Brian Walden, uh, or you know, up there with Jeremy Paxman. You know, just and so effective and impartial and fair in the way that he did that, uh, and rigorous. And we talked about you know we talked about the Jeremy Corbyn interview, but he did the same to Boris Johnson. I don't have any doubts about his journalistic. Uh, ethics in relation to that we talked about in the brian walden story there and there were some questions about ethics i didn't have a problem at all the, op the opposite with andrew neil so that's all i can base it on really is that you know for my money he was such a talent that he should still be there really he should you know he's on channel four which is which is great at channel four but you know he should be the premier political interviewer because he's the best at the job um and so that was why for me irrespective of you know these issues you raise i, I was more than happy that I was able to work with him there. It is a very, very, very readable book, I have to say, full of all sorts of insights, all sorts of brand new information, which I think people won't be aware. It really so it shows how shows how the sausage is made, if you like. In a very readable way, and I found it a very, you know, thoroughly enjoyable. Uh, Why is this lying bastard lying to me by Rob Burley, who, uh, as I've said, I think, was a very very big figure in our democracy because of the position he had as head of like these live political programs which were in charge of interrogating our politicians so um rob it's been a real pleasure to be able to chat to you about such a breadth of issues from factorism to the very modern day um so congratulations on the book and thank you thank for joining you. us and do like Thanks and subscribe no, no, sorry, sorry, I, I, I ruined your promo i ruined your promo thank you owen i, I really enjoyed it cheers <laughs> Thank you very much. Please like and subscribe and I'll see everyone soon. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.